Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Thursday, January 20th, and I am joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Doing well. I don't know if this happens to you in London as much as it does in Montreal, but uh, there are often times when someone from pre-university life is in the same city and has moved here. And despite us both knowing the other person is in the same city, there's just no effort to connect whatsoever and it stays out of the habit. So this week I've seen two friends, both pre-university who have been living in Montreal for well over a year, who I hadn't seen in six plus months. And that feels really good. Okay, interesting. I mean, there is one person who I can think of off of the top of my head where I do know what you're talking about. I know where he works uh, in London. Ah, no, I, I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> and I'm talking about like friend friends. Like, okay. We okay. were in school together, friends. We were hanging out at times in high school okay, on a regular you. basis. Um, Hadley's one of them, actually. <laughs> oh, cool. Yeah. Besides that, no one I know lives in London. So yeah, yeah, you just live in a cooler city, right? That's kind of the <laughs> yeah. And I was saying this as I was saying goodbye to the friend today. Like, we're at a point where a lot of our undergrad friends have left. Yeah, like I maybe have a third of the ones I did while I was in university still here in the city. So it's time to start mixing and merging those groups because <laughs> the numbers have gone down, and just the social circle kind of expands right at the onset of university, whatever res clubs members you're in life's like this in a lot of ways. It can be that with a new job, new school, whatever the case, you have those couple institutions that like expand your group right away. And then from then on, it mostly shrinks except for like a friend of a friend here and there. And uh, every now and then that's shrunk too much. You've got to cast the net out again. Wow. It's a lot to take in on a Thursday night after a long week. Yeah, it's going to be a short one. So I figured I could ramble a bit in the opening. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, yeah. And hey, you know what? I feel like this should count as a little bit of friend time, right? Friends since oh. the very beginning. Um, and we get to connect yeah. twice a week. So you got to add that to the, the friendship time for sure. Oh, 100. This is the most time we've spent together since we were like post 12 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And I, uh, I love every minute of it, buddy. Yeah. It's a, technology can be great sometimes. Yes. All right. That's a good, that's a good spot to, to kind of close that conversation and open up the world of sports here. Um, I know you are going to kick it off with some observations from the Australian Open. Uh, going on this week and then we do have football fan cave where i will preview the best weekend in football uh the divisional round we are down to our final eight teams um so still enough games that you get that volume of football but it is the best of the best and so we are going to get some really really great football looking forward to previewing that and then we'll have a couple of notes here uh combat corner basketball hockey uh, but bits and pieces really to snack on. So I will leave it to you to kick us off uh, with uh, with the world of tennis, my friend. Thanks for that. 
in the Australian Open, of which I'll say right off the bat, I have watched almost nothing of due to the time zone difference. Uh, despite that, still following it, checking in on every morning on what I missed while sleeping. And we're through two rounds here. The top and bottom of the draw have both made it through. The top half getting on with the third round tonight. And so far, all of the contenders I outlined last episode have made it through. Uh, two, three ranked players out, but thus far, the draw has really proceeded as uh, the seeding probabilities would suggest. So with that said, a couple of notes on the crop of players I have my eye on most from the tournament, most of whom I outlined last time. So Alex Zverev, arguably the favorite to win this tournament due to his him having the more recent win over Medvedev, uh, despite Medvedev beating Djokovic, uh, who Zverev lost to in the US Open. So far, straight sets for Alex, been on point. He will face the winner in the fourth round if he proceeds of Denis Shapovalov going up against Riley Opelka. Shapovalov coming off a tough second round matchup that uh, saw him get into trouble against the Korean Kwan. Dennis had the game in his hand there in the third set, uh, and he blew an easy service game after breaking and then let himself get broken again. Uh, lost that set to go down 2-1, then had to battle back in the fourth and fifth, getting his game sorted against Apelka, whose serve has been phenomenal, especially in his most recent second round matchup against Anderson. Um, Chapo's probably going to struggle because Opelka's game very similar, a great first serve, lots of unforced errors, lots of winners. Uh, when Chapo gets into those types of matchups, though, the double where it's a serving kind of stare down, uh, pistols at dawn type thing, Chapo will double fault and let the pressure get to him often. So he's going to have to tighten the nerves and find a way to fight Opelka's serve. Because when he, the, I think Opelka very similar to Isner, who I watched Chapo play at last year's Miami Open. And it was showdown at high noon between the two high power serves and Dennis blinked first. He couldn't break Isner's serve. And eventually he hit those double faults that just got him into trouble. He was able to bail himself out early on a couple of double faults. His great serve will do that. But I think he will always blink first with the double faults. So it's on him to find the... Uh, take the lead, take the momentum and find a way to break that serve, maybe his backhand looking to make some magic. Uh, moving on, Alcaraz, the Spaniard who took the next-gen ATP title this past fall has been phenomenal. Straight sets all the way to his third-round matchup against Matteo Berrettini, uh, the, I think a guy who's just a couple tweaks in his game away from being at that top level with Tsitsipas, Medvedev, and... Um, Zverev. Ranking-wise, he's not far off at all. So this, I think, is the best matchup of the third round we get in this draw. The winner of that 
going to face the winner of Corda, Sebastian the American, who has a thing for upsetting Brits in his early matchups. It was Daniel Evans last Wimbledon, and this time it's the 12th ranked Cam Nori. He took a tough five-setter that some go the full uh, tiebreaker in the fourth and fifth, but he took both of those to get the third round matchup against Pablo Carreno Busta, the 19th ranked Spaniard, who just, he off this guy always seems to be a foil to Canadians. Uh, they find their way through him. We'll see if Corda has the same luck. Stefano Stitsipas, so far looking solid. Felix Ojealiasim, likewise, he's going to face a rank, the ranked Evans, aforementioned that Corda beat, who got a buy through his second round matchup. And then the winner of that will face Rublev. A uh, guy I'd also put in there with the Zverev, Medvedev, Tsitsipas category. Uh, he had a really fantastic second half to the 2021 tennis year, and he's been dominant so far. Daniel Medvedev, the other favorite with Zverev to take this tournament, has gets past Nick Kyrgios in the second round. Hasn't done it in straight sets, but fairly dominant. Nothing too tight or sketchy for him so far. His third and fourth round matchups won't figure against seeded ranked opponents. Uh, in the fifth round, he'll face the winner of that Rublev, Felix Evans bit of the draw. So Medvedev should be coming in pretty stress-free to the quarterfinals. The last player I wanted to mention, my dark horse of the tournament, Rafael Nadal, been absolutely stellar in his first Grand Slam since that French Open against Djokovic. Hasn't, not only has he not dropped a set yet, he's the only player in the third round who hasn't needed to go to seven games in a set. He's managed to find the break in every set he's played, or at least all six of them. It's really no surprise he's made it at least to the quarterfinals in all but one year he's been playing the Australian Open uh, since 2004 I think so it just shows he took the correct amount of time off and is back in pitch perfect form it seems going up against his ranked opponent Kashinov and that rattles off the list of contenders we're at that point now where most Opponents are facing ranked opponents, except for um, Zverev and Medvedev, who got the best look at the draw. You know, that top, top part of the draw, it's just the players left in it on their knees, thanking their luck. They don't have to worry about Djokovic. So we'll see who cannibalizes that draw and comes out in one where everyone thought they knew the answer. But yeah, the Australian Open shaping up should be the best 10 minutes words should be the best tennis of the draw in these next couple nights it only gets better from here on nice to have a grand slam back in action wonderful wonderful i don't personally i don't see how rafael nadal could ever be a dark horse interesting to have those kind of four words in the same sentence but uh nonetheless <laughs> looking forward to having some of the fat trimmed from this tournament and really diving into the meat I'd never say those words during the French, but <laughs> coming off injury at a point where the big three era might be broken after seeing Djokovic lose and Federer kind of 
uh, solidify that his level has stepped down no grand slams in Batman's future unless he pulls out a miracle beyond miracles at Wimbledon, I'd say. So yeah, I maybe be rough about to show the old guard not done yet. And when we look at the year 2022 and 2021 in calendar grands, or excuse me, in Grand Slams one, seven of the eight will still belong to either Rafa or Djokovic. And the two years will look exactly as the last five have in ATP tennis. But it seems like that possibility is the smallest it's been in a long time right now. And that influencing how I'm thinking about this. Very fair. Very fair. All right. Thank you for that. Um, Australian Open is going to keep on rolling through the week here. We're going to take a step to the side and go into our football fan cave. Um, another big weekend ahead of us uh, here at home in North America rather than across the world. And uh, like I mentioned, the best week in the NFL divisional round, um, four games each of them with plenty of intrigue and um, analyzed down to a, to a fine detail, which you may not find from me, but I'll do my best to kind of give a high-level breakdown of what I'm expecting out of these games. So we will start with the Saturday afternoon game where the Cincinnati Bengals, coming off their first playoff win in 31 years, will be visiting the number one seed Tennessee Titans. Now this Titans team, as I mentioned, uh, has faced quite a few injuries this year, which is why their head coach, uh, Mike Vrabel, is, is in line for a coach of the year nomination. And now with a bye week um, being the one seed and getting that extra week off, this Titans team has had a chance to heal up. Um, it is possible that we could be getting Derrick Henry in the near future, uh, thinking about how big of a loss that was, adding it to this number one seeded team uh, that had success without him for so many weeks almost seems unfair uh, but that could be a big addition for them here uh, in crunch time now talking about the actual game itself uh, I did mention last week that a big key in the matchup between the Bengals and the Raiders was going to be the pass rush of the Raiders and it's going to be the very same here um, with the Titans Jeffrey Simmons has stepped out as uh, an all pro player kind of out of nowhere seemingly for Tennessee. And he has been excellent all season long. Um, he's helped Tennessee manage to create pressure by just rushing for, um, and unlike the Raiders, Tennessee actually has a, a better secondary to back up those extreme pass rushes. And I think they're going to make it much more difficult for Joe Burrow and the Bengals to get into a comfort zone on offense. Um, even more so than what the Raiders were able to do. Now, the way that the Bengals can counter this is something they haven't leaned on in recent weeks. Like they have great receivers and a great passing game, but Joe Mixon in that backfield is an electric playmaker. And maybe he's a guy that they're going to have to lean on a little bit more in this game to try and uh, get the pass rushers on their heels and, and into the run game, as opposed to just pinning the ears back and getting after the quarterback on the other side, uh, Tennessee, humming on offense, but it's really, if you're Cincinnati, you're going to try and double up AJ Brown and let the rest of those guys beat you because up until uh, like halfway through the season, most of these guys, uh, people had never heard of 
in the receiving core for Tennessee. And um, they do get one extra week for Julio Jones to heal up. He's a little bit older now, but come playoff time, you know, he's still going to be able to make a couple big plays. Uh, so Jones and AJ Brown, really the key guys to focus on for Cincinnati, but AJ Brown is like the guy now in Tennessee. I do see the Titans being able to pull this one out just with the, the slightly elevated defensive level compared to the Raiders. Um, and then on the other side, they're not going to make Tannehill doesn't make a ton of mistakes. And this is a team that has had uh, a playoff win in the last couple of years, and they have the home field advantage. They have the bye week to prepare. It just feels like Tennessee is, is a one seed that people are sleeping on. If that somehow seems possible uh, and, and they're in a good position to, to get this win and head towards the AFC championship game. We go to Saturday night. Uh, this is the one that Max will be probably tuning in into if he if he does tune into an NFL game. We got the San Francisco 49ers coming up, coming off of a massive win in terms of television, uh, maybe not in terms of an upset. And they're heading to Lambeau and it is going to be cold and we might get a little bit of snow. Uh, but this is the exact same recipe that we kind of had two years ago, right, in the NFC Championship game, where the 49ers went out and just demolished the Packers, ran the ball all over them, just dominated on both sides of the football. Um, the only difference is here is that this Packers team, the one seed, they have the bye week. Uh, their defense is going to be healthier than last time, and they're going to have more time to prep for this game. And as well, they offensively, uh, Adams and Rodgers have reached this like telepathic connection that they didn't have two years ago. They're virtually unstoppable. And unless you have a number one guy like a Jalen Ramsey who can shut down Adams one-on-one, -on -one, where Ramsey, not even sure he can do that, um, that's something that the 49ers just simply don't have. And so they have to come up with a recipe like they get it, did against Dallas where they're changing the looks and they're just pressuring the quarterback enough, but just Aaron Rodgers is like Dak Prescott's a great quarterback. Hasn't looked spectacular this season coming off the injury, but Aaron Rodgers is just in a class of his own really right now. Him and Tom Brady are the guys who you want with the ball in the playoffs. Um, so I think this is going to be a different result for green Bay. Um, they have just pl great playmakers in the air on the ground as well. And, and they'll finally have Zadarius Smith healthy. Uh, and, and that defense is, is as good as it's ever going to be. And they also may have Jair Alexander back as well. Who's their number one corner. The key for this game is once again, San Francisco, if they can dominate time and possession, then they're going to put themselves in a spot to win it just like they did against Dallas last week. So really, really interesting game and a great color combo for this game between two historic franchises. All right. Sunday afternoon, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers hosting the Los Angeles Rams. And this is a matchup that we have already seen this year. Um, both two teams that just dominated the competition. We didn't talk about the Rams Cardinals game because it happened on Monday night, but Kyler Murray looked like a child out there on the field and Matthew Stafford had an excellent game and Odell Beckham Jr. got involved and this Rams team simply babied the Cardinals and, and beat them by uh, upwards of 20 plus points. And so they're feeling good. They have the high end talent. Like the ceiling of this team is a Super Bowl. But a couple of injuries or 
a couple of blowups on the sideline from one of their bigger personalities, like an Odell, like a Von Miller, could lead to some disconnect. And when you're going up against Tom Brady, you have to be perfect. Now, I think the Rams definitely have a chance to win this game. Their running game has looked the best it's looked all season, and that's going to be the key for them. Sony Michelle and Cam Akers coming back from an Achilles tear in five months. He's a mutant. And those two guys right now are running the ball really well. The Rams are blocking well at the line of scrimmage and have these run schemes that made them so successful. That one Todd Gurley, the rushing title, I believe it's five years ago now. Uh, but this Rams team, the running game at least, looks like the way it did when they were in the Super Bowl against Tom Brady's Patriots. And it's a great way to set up the deep passing game of Stafford now. And, and Cooper Cup is so much better than any weapon they had in that previous Super Bowl run. Um, now I talk about the Rams and all the stars, but none bigger than Tom Brady on the other side. Um, doesn't like some offensive line injuries, some wide receiver injuries, but again, who covers Rob Gronkowski, who covers Cam Bray? Obviously the Ramsey Mike Evans matchup is going to be awesome. I cannot wait for that one. They always go at it. Um, and Mike Evans had a big game last week. They needed him to, but I just, it's going to be difficult for the Rams to cover those tight ends in space. Uh, and that is going to be where you really see Tom Brady take advantage of this team. Um, it, it, it comes down to for the Rams on defense is Aaron Donald and is Von Miller, uh, going to be able to get to Tom Brady. And, and if that offensive line for the bucks isn't healthy, then it's very possible that we could see a, a road team getting the win in this one. Last game here. Uh, don't turn away from this one. You're going to have to watch every second because there are going to be points galore in this one. I cannot wait. The Kansas City Chiefs, the Buffalo Bills, the rematch we've been waiting for since week four when Buffalo went into Kansas City, same situation, and got the win. They, this was, that was their early season Super Bowl. They game-planned hard on both sides of the ball, um, made the Chiefs look out of sorts and offensively they were doing whatever they want and it is going to look a lot like it did against the Patriots where Josh Allen they're going to spread people out they're either going to pass or he is going to be the runner I thought Devin Singletary was great against the Patriots but I don't know if he'll have a similar performance against the Chiefs and it's really going to come to, down to Allen as a punishing uh, rusher of the ball uh, to force that Chiefs defense to go away from what it's been so good at doing this year. And this Chiefs defense kind of had an identity change halfway through the season. Um, they have some big playmakers, but they're really going to have to focus on keeping Allen contained in the pocket because he can pull plays out of nowhere. On the other side, though, similar story. Patrick Mahomes. Uh, we know he's the best player in the NFL. This Bills defense last time did a fantastic job of just setting that high ceiling, uh, not allowing the deep passing plays. And in that time, the Chiefs didn't have any kind of underneath playmakers to, to really expose a defense that was forcing them to nickel and dime. But Jarek McKinnon was the star of the game last week against Pittsburgh Steelers, had a, over 100 scrimmage yards, uh, both on the ground and through the air, was involved at every turn. This was the most that we had seen him get snaps all season, but he looks fantastic, and he's going to be an, a, a really important X factor for this Chiefs team. Again, if they're 
kind of holding the top of that defense against the Tyreek Hill, against the Demarcus Robinson, against the Byron Pringle, then it's going to be the McKinnons and the Clyde Edwards Alaires and the Travis Kelsey's of the world that are going to need to, to eat up yards underneath that Buffalo defense. And uh, <laughs> so hard to pick what the outcome of this game is. I want to lean Buffalo, but I think just with the amount of the way that Kansas city has been able to figure it out and I think they're well on their way to a, a, a repeat Super Bowl appearance. Uh, it would be three times in a row. But I got to stick to my original prediction, uh, the Bills and the Packers. So I'm going to go Buffalo because I think Josh Allen right now is a more dangerous runner of the ball than Patrick Mahomes, and it's going to be a matchup between those two. So there you have it. Uh, four awesome, awesome games I encourage everyone to catch as much as you can this weekend because uh, after this, we really, we run out of football and uh, that's just sad. <laughs> okay. That's it. Done for me with the uh, divisional round preview. Thanks for that. Unfortunately, I will not be able to catch the Packers 49ers game Saturday night as I will have my eyes glued elsewhere as UFC hits the pay-per-view again when Francis Ngannou takes on Cyril Gaon, the heavyweight matchup everyone has been waiting for, undoubtedly the best two fighters in the world right now going at it. Uh, some bittersweet tinges on this one, though. First, the hype. Francis Ngannou is just one of those men who is walking charisma regardless of how he speaks and what he says because he's such a physically imposing, dominating athletic specimen, let alone the amazing backstory that accompanies all that. So his rise from to prominence, to the Stipe loss, to the like four knockouts in three minutes, to overcoming Stipe most pe in a dominating title performance, and crowning himself the baddest, the scariest, and most powerful man in the world all in one night. There, that's the quick TLDR on Francis. The craziest thing, though, is that this terrifying, nightmarish monster of a man who eight months ago was without a doubt, like, Odds will be on the under of over under knock him knocking anyone else out in under two minutes. Doesn't have that one in the bank at all in this title fight matchup going against Cyril gone. And that's because Cyril's been pretty much perfect in the octagon since he stepped foot. Another massive man, not with the muscles and explosiveness of Nganu, but still a proper 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, and all the weight and gait that accompanies that and a healthy build. Uh, what's terrifying about Cyril, though, is not the power, not the athleticism, but the coordination. He moves and coordinates and flows better than most five foot four people do. The control he has over his body and the way he utilizes that in a Muay Thai kickboxing style has made it impossible for the slow-fisted heavyweight division to really touch Cyril in all of his fights. 
no one's been able to hit him. He outlands his opponents incredibly severely. He wins pretty much every round he's in. Uh, he came off that Derek Lewis knockout to, I think it was a knockout, not a rear naked choke, either way to win the interim belt and set up this Francis fight. But winding back one further, Alexander Volkov, one of the best strikers in the division, incredibly rangy fighter, couldn't touch him. And so we're back to the age-old thing about striking and power. It doesn't matter how much you have if you can't land it. In Francis's first fight against Stipe, he could not land that power. He made the, all the correct adjustments going into that fight. But Cyril Gon's defense is just different than what Stipe did. It was a very box-heavy approach, which made it easier to wrestle. But the difference in strength really cost Stipe there. Um, Cyril's going to be fighting a Muay Thai kickboxing style, so more distance puts him at less risk in the spacing from the get-go. No need to shoot for takedowns means he's not going to get into a situation where he's shooting, getting sprawled on, and then having to deal with the aftermath of that. And he's also just a bit bigger than Stipe. I don't know what he's going to come in at, but I think he'll be at a bit less of a strength at disadvantage than Stipe was. So I should have checked the official betting before this. Uh, I'm not surprised, though, if Cyril's the favorite because his skill set is almost built around beating guys like Nganu, although it also seems to be built around beating anyone in the heavy division because no one can touch him. And that's the matchup. It's undoubtedly the two best heavyweights in the world right now. The guy who, if he hits you, knocks you out and has been ridiculously good at hitting everyone over the last two years, and the guy who doesn't get hit, I have to pick Francis just because it seems like it's almost guaranteed to be his last fight in the UFC, which is a tremendous bummer. But if he can win this, carry the hype, and go into the boxing ring, it doesn't matter what happens in there just making it there and the paycheck that would in the company would be a huge win for him and fighter rights. Uh, you know, UFC and the top level organizations are all hoping for Cyril to win so they can transition Francis out with even having to deal with the legacy of the belt. So for that reason alone, I'm hoping Francis, but that takes nothing away from Cyril and it's going to be a wonderful fight. Have these two fought before? They've sparred before. Okay. Okay. They Interesting. Both Francis went to coming out of Cameroon, went to Paris. Not too many MMA gyms in Paris, as MMA was illegal till quite recently there. So they were at the same gym for some time and they did spar together. Okay. I thought we had seen this fight because they've both been around now in the heavyweight scene for a while. So this is oh, gonna be a good one. No, no. So Cyril's like for a UFC newcomer. Like, I think yeah. it, he's been in the division like two, two and a half years. Okay. Like I'm Francis thinking was, then, I'm thinking yeah. then, as long as this podcast has existed, they've been a oh, highlight. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I think, uh, I think Cyril was coming off the Tanner Bowser fight and going into the JDS fight when, uh, 
that was the first pod I did that uh, Cyril was fighting JDS. So since then, he's fought Volkov, then Curtis Blades. So this will be his fourth fight. Wow. Wow. All Time right. flies. Sounds like fun. <laughs> okay. Uh, cool. Wrapping up combat corner there. Looking forward to the recap on Sunday. Um, we'll talk a little bit of basketball, and then we'll have a little – kind of Friday reading here to send you off on your weekend as this, that'll be when you're, you're listening to this pod. Um, basketball. We'll start Cavs nets, kind of the only bit of basketball I've caught this week, which is unfortunate because the Raptors really a couple of tough, tough losses um, after some great efforts put up uh, specifically last night against the Dallas Mavericks. That one hurts, um, but the wizards do lose. So uh, you kind of stay with the pack and the, and the Knicks lost as well. So they're hanging in there in that seven to 12 range, just trying to keep pu- pushing away towards the six seed. Uh, so speaking of the Wizards, they lost to the Nets and the Nets game that we ended up both watching a little bit of, they're up against the Cleveland Cavaliers. And this was our first look at a Brooklyn Nets team without Kevin Durant as their go-to guy. Um, and the Cleveland Cavaliers, who have suffered from a couple of injuries this year, still overall, the lineups that they have in place are really, really solid. And, and that ended up showing up in, in the late kind of crunch time run here in the fourth quarter. So, Max, I, I don't know if you want to walk me through some of the takeaways you had. Yeah, we saw Kyrie and Harden both do their thing for the Nets in the fourth quarter. Cleveland, late in the third, when I started watching, had the lead. Uh, Kyrie led the Nets to a push to tie it up and even get a bit of a lead hung on to that momentum Kyrie was just kind of attacking at will but the Cavs offensively were able to move the ball really well and get open looks especially just the size advantage they had with Allen Mobley Markinen and Love was absurd they could get a mismatch in the paint almost at will. And that was really able to help them hang in offensively. Um, Garland, especially impressive when he says go, is just able to create his shots. James Harden going neck and neck with Chris Ball for my most hated player in the NBA. Um, like it was almost like Kyrie did his thing attacking the mid-range close shots layups uh and then it was like okay Harden time for you to do your thing right now and Harden's thing was just foul hunting he like hooks does the thing where he just like sticks his arm into your arm and tries to run forward with the ball hooking himself to get a call um he had this crazy egregious flop where he pulled up for a three and then just fell when he landed to make it look like he landed on the feet, but like the defending player's feet, but he didn't, he just fell. Like this grown man just went on his two feet and kept going ass onto the ground. And then uh, another one where Markinen had his hand out and he just like rips a shot up through the hand. Really hard to watch as Brooklyn couldn't get the ball moving offensively, but Harden just kept earning trips to the line and keeping them ahead anyway. Great to see Garland and the team play beat it out. Um, Markinen had a nice three in there after getting baited. 
Uh, he misses his dagger three, though, after Garland's explosiveness put the Cavs ahead after Harden finally could eight any more fouls. And then in a really fantastic last play of the game, uh, Lowry Markinen just completely D's up Harden, who's looking to foul hunt, looking to get something. He has no space for an open shot but also nothing of it easy. So he just throws the ball away, misses the pass to Kyrie, and Okoro scoops it up and slams it home to take it. Um, the Cavs losing last night, the Nets winning. Nothing really changes. KD only out for some time. But this Cavs team, I think I said around the one-third mark, if they're still hanging around at the halfway mark, it's time to take them for real. Kevin Love's return to the team has been a boost. These guys are, <laughs> in an undersized era of basketball, going to be really interesting in the playoffs if all those big players can get rolling. 100%. Because it's unstoppable. Yeah. This Cavs team, really, really fun and really unique. Um, I think Jared Allen is going to probably be their all-star who ends up making it on the team. But I, I wouldn't say no to a, to a Darius Garland or even an Evan Mobley, this will probably be the last year that Evan Mobley isn't on an all-star team. Um, in terms of James Harden, it's honestly just disappointing how far he's fallen from, what, two years ago to now, like a bit of a shell of what he was, just not nearly as explosive. The foul hunting has become a necessity rather than kind of a, a part of his offensive game. Like you could argue that he obviously still frustrating that he was a foul hunter, but it was almost an art form, all the different ways that he could draw calls. Now it's just kind of sad. Um, and it was exhibited there when he ended up throwing that pass away. Uh, they're going to really need him to find it in, in himself to cut down a little bit on the weight and do what he can to step up while KD is gone. And his then, great playmaking vision. It's just yeah. he can't create his own shot right now. No, and and teams just aren't scared of any anymore. Like if you have Laurie Markin and Ding up James Harden late yeah. in games, you're, you obviously teams feel comfortable with that, which is uh, it says something right about where Harden has has reached as a player. Um, and then yeah, like <laughs> when you've got Markin and when you got three seven footers on the court together and two of them are bonafide rim protectors, like not just shot uh, disturbers, like they erase plays. Um, it is. It makes your life a lot easier if you're a marketing, being able to play a little bit tighter defensively so that if somehow a Harden does get past you, you know there's going to be someone to help you there at the rim. Um, and that just helps the whole team improve defensively. So yeah, really fun Cavs team. I think they have a legitimate shot at working their way up to a three or even a two seed. Um, it's two games yeah. right now. Like it's all so tight, one through six, just like seven through twelve. Yeah, really, really fun team, and we'll keep following them as we get close to the All Star game and see if they got one or two people going. Okay, insert obligatory vote Fred VanVleet for the All Star game. Uh, plus Pascal Siakam, but Fred probably still number one in terms of power rankings. Uh, and and last bit of basketball news here, Frank Vogel versus Russell Westbrook. So uh, Frank Vogel on the hot seat in the last couple of weeks in Lakerland. Um, seems like he's becoming the scapegoat for all the terrible roster moves that were made and the performance of the team this season. 
looks like he's punching back a little bit against the Indiana Pacers last night. Uh, took Westbrook out around the four-minute mark of the fourth quarter. Did not put him back in in the post-game interview. Said he put the players on the court who he thought were best suited to win the game. Um, almost, almost seems to be a shot a little bit at Laker management that this team was really successful with Vogel. They won a title. Um, and then they go and they make this move for a guy that we said, and everyone said, doesn't fit with LeBron, like just not a guy that fits in that type of team. Um, and Vogel saying, look, if you're going to put the blame all on me, then I'm going to take this last kind of shot I have to really, I got nothing left to lose. So I'm going to play the guys I think can win in an attempt to save my job. And that's not playing the guy that you made the big move in the off season for. Uh, and it says something about Russell Westbrook there. And yeah, this Vogel situation is so bizarre because the Lakers, right? The, the Cowboys, of the NBA, they're the Leafs of the NBA, like every second. They won, a, they won a ring two years ago. You can't yeah. say that. <laughs> true, true. But in terms of popularity, like there's an article written every second about them. And this one, like they're fall. It, it's, it's almost like the Kawhi situation when they're falling in a helicopter. Like there's so much Vogel watch right now um that you gotta feel like something's coming soon with the lakers it's funny because when i first heard about this westbrook westbrook trade being speculated i thought it might be a good idea and that roughly involved westbrook being on the court as much as possible when lebron was off the court and then not in clutch time because obviously you don't want the two of them on the court at the same time in clutch time. You want LeBron taking the ball into the paint, getting it in motion, ready to hit whoever the open shooter is if they double, triple, quadruple team him as they sometimes do. And Westbrook is completely useless for those situations. Um, the other part, speaking of LeBron still, is I kind of hope Lakers management dishes behind the scenes like how involved he was in this Westbrook acquisition because that's when all the chips fall I I think this team is constantly under and overvaluated of where it's at a lot over at the start and a lot under these days as they manage to stay around the 500 mark as we continue to remark all season, all podcast, I still kind of doubt they make it out of the first round at this point. But when all that settles and falls and fingers are flying and looking somewhere to stay firmly pointed instead of being constantly in motion as they are during the season, I think it really will come down to being between LeBron and Lakers management. So how that shakes out with LeBron's contract getting closer and closer will be lovely popcorn for us. Always entertaining. Always entertaining. Speaking of entertainment, let's finish with a Friday reading. Max, have you seen this interview? No. Okay, I'm going to read you the transcript here. So obviously, I'm not going to do it justice. You have to go and watch the video afterwards. Give me a nice we go. German accent. <laughs> so Jim Matheson, Hockey Hall of Fame um, honoree and, and great uh, journalist in a post-game interview with the Edmonton Oilers. Lots of reasons for why the Oilers are playing the way they are in terms of winning and losing. What do you think the number one reason 
is for the losses. Is there one thing in your own mind where you're saying we've got to get better at that? Leon Dreisaitl. Yeah, we have to get better at everything. Matheson. Would you like to expand on that? Dreisaitl. No, you can do that. You know everything. Matheson responds with, why are you so pissy, Leon? And Leon goes, hmm? Matheson, why are you so pissy? Leon, I'm not. Matheson, yeah, you are. Whenever I ask you a question, Dreisaitl, I gave you an answer. Matheson, not a very good one. Dreisaitl, okay. We're not done. Matheson follows up with a question. I have one more for you, Leon. You're showing your frustration on the ice last game against Ottawa. Is that a good thing when you show it so the other team knows you're frustrated? Dreisaitl, yeah, it's a good thing for sure. Matheson, good. Dreisaitl, yeah. Gets up and walks away. Wow. As tense and electric of a post-game interview as we've ever seen in hockey. I love it. This is, this is like really renowned journalists saying pissy. The word pissy. Yeah. To a hockey player. Three sentences in, like, <laughs> you, you know, it was, you know, you don't break out the word pissy after yeah. two poor exchanges no. without yeah. something happening before the cameras even start rolling. Absolutely. Uh, There's some context there. There's something that was written that will come out in the next couple of days. Um, and just like, you have to watch the video because there's so many kind of tiny moments there. Like they already yeah. hate each other as soon as they're both in position to like converse. So there's something there, but like the, the tension of this Oilers team right now is very high because they're under a lot of pressure. Um, I think they're right now, like right tied with the Canucks and we know how the Canucks started their season. So uh, it's those two battling for that final playoff spot now. And then Obviously, the reporters are feeding into it and things are getting heated, but quite quite the exchange that I recommend everyone go check out on YouTube. And then you've got that. And then you've got the Brandon Perlini interview where he says, you know what? World's not always rainbows and butterflies, but we're going to keep fighting uh, and we're going to we're going to get back to our winning ways. And some reporter asks him, uh, when do you plan on doing that? And he goes, next game. <laughs> like almost perfectly teed up. So quite the, the spectrum there, but I thought that was, that was a couple of awesome interviews and Edmonton Oilers interviews are much must watch TV right now. Obviously we saw the two Connor ones earlier in the week. Oh man. It's sometimes <laughs> you do just feel bad for the athletes and the mandated interviews, but like, I don't feel bad. It's part of their job. I, in a culture and climate where they actually spoke their mind and it wasn't just stock answers, yeah. I'd be a lot more disappointed by this type of exchange. But like the fact when you say like, it's just their job, what you're actually implying the expectations are is so lukewarm, bland and uninteresting of yeah. a product that I don't really care for it at all. And well, if it just creates this miserable I tense situation. Well, it, like it's their job to answer the questions, but I actually don't yeah. mind the answer from Leon. Like he can, no, no. like I, it's Marshawn Lynch's job to go up and answer questions. But if he wants to say, I'm just here so I won't get fined. I love it. It's entertainment yeah. for me. So that part, like they still have to go up and do it, but really like, I don't care what they say as long as they're really filling that time. Because even if they say, 
the times that they say something that's even more useless than the stock answer is when we get storylines like this. <laughs> uh, if anything, this is more useful. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. A little bit of humor, a little bit of fun to send you off. Uh, if you're listening on uh, Friday, send you off into your weekend. We are almost through the lockdown here in Ontario. Uh, January 31st, things will slowly start to reopen again, and we will grab our lives back. Hopefully, not like we've said that a couple times already. <laughs> Looking forward to having three quarters of a life for the next four to six months. Sports <laughs> Next Door, signing out.